Well, hey, friends, it is so good to be with you today. This is week three in our message series, I Believe, where we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, which is the most ancient codified statement of what Christians have believed through the centuries. And so before we jump into our section today, I want to read with you a passage of scripture written hundreds of years before Jesus was born by the prophet Isaiah. And it forecasts how the Messiah who would come will suffer for the sins of his people. And so this is a kind of lengthy passage of scripture. So just sit back and let this imagery and this prediction, this prophecy sink in. This is Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. God says, see, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was stripped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Yet it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will see a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. He will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts and homes of your faithful. Kindle in us the fire of your love. Open now your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started looking at the middle section of the Apostles' Creed. And there's 12 statements in the Apostles' Creed. And the middle section is the longest section. It's the Jesus section. And six statements in the Creed are devoted to the Jesus section. 
Last week, we reiterated what Christians have always believed to be the true identity of the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And the creed says that we believe that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Messiah come from God. We believe that he is God's only eternal son. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's only son, and he is our Lord. We believe that he is Lord over all and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord in coming days. But here and now, we confess that he is our Lord. And we believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's who Christians say Jesus is is. So now we're moving into what Jesus did. As we get to this section, we're looking at some parts of what Jesus did that we don't focus on all of the time. And so again, in the creed, no word is extra. Everything is boiled down. Every word matters. So I'm going to read to you the middle of this middle section of the creed, and then we'll unpack what it says Jesus did. So this middle section says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. So this is what Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, did for us. First, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, it occurred to me this week that this is a part of Jesus' ministry for us that I often overlook, that I don't talk about that much. I talk a lot about what Jesus taught and the things that he did in this world, the miracles and the wonders. And I talk about how he died for us. But the creed doesn't let us gloss over the fact that before he died, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And this was a key part of how Jesus accomplished our salvation. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, we have sometimes have a hard time remembering that although Jesus is the eternal son of God, and he is fully God, that he was also fully human. And part of being human is suffering. It's part of the human experience. And as we read the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, we see him suffering hunger and thirst. We see him suffering from fatigue and weariness. We see him suffering grief. When his friend Lazarus died, he broke down weeping. And the scriptures also said that he suffered when he was tempted. If you've ever struggled with addiction or struggled with uh, all these longings to do things, you know you shouldn't. You know that it feels like suffering sometimes when you're tempted. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But the specific suffering mentioned in the creed is the suffering he endured under Pontius Pilate. Now, it's been noted that there's only two non-God characters mentioned by name in the Apostles' Creed. The first one is a good example for us. The second one is a bad example for us. Mary is the first person mentioned by name, and she is a great example because Mary submitted herself willingly to the good plan of God, even though it came at great risk for her. On the other hand, uh, Pilate is an example 
of someone who caved under the pressure of evil people and went down in history as the man who's responsible for the killing of the Son of God. Now, Pilate isn't named in the creed because he was so evil, like the most evil person in history. He's mentioned in the creed as an example of someone who was weak, who caved under the pressure over people threatening to riot against him. He was afraid. He caved and condemned an innocent man. But he's really named in the creed primarily as a historical marker of when Jesus suffered and died. Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect of the region of Judea in ancient Israel. He was the fifth governor of the province and the second longest holder of the office. He held that position from 26 to 36 AD. Pilate's existence and his time in office is not something that only Christians attest to. Secular historians all attest and agree that Pilate held the office during that time frame. And so what this does is show us that the eternal Son of God suffered in real time, in real human history, under a real human leader. Now, one of the things that Pilate did to Jesus was have Jesus flogged. The Roman flogging method was designed to inflict maximum pain but also to keep a person from going into shock or passing out. Because if a person was passing out, they wouldn't be being tortured. They wouldn't be cognizant of it. So for it to be torturous, they needed the person to stay awake. And so the flogging whip would rip apart the person's skin so they'd be bleeding profusely. And so Jesus, even before he was come to death, was sentenced over, handed over to be flogged by the Roman soldiers. And after Jesus was tortured with flogging, then the soldiers, they put together a crown made of thorns and they placed it on Jesus' head and began mocking him and taunting him. Now, when we have loved ones who are close to death, it becomes clear that they're not going to recover. Usually our prayers change. We stop praying that God would heal them and we start praying that God would let them pass peacefully and that they wouldn't suffer. And if someone dies in their sleep or they die uh, without suffering, we consider that a comfort, a grace. Many people are more afraid of the suffering that offering precedes death than they are of death itself because people don't want to suffer before they die. And in fact, um, in modern execution methods that are used by governments, they're usually designed to minimize pre-death suffering to be merciful, and to take the person's life in the most pain-free way. But the Apostles' Creed will not let us forget that Jesus suffered. No pain-free death for our Lord. He went out in the most painful way that was available in ancient times. Physically, he suffered torture. Emotionally, he suffered abandonment by his friends and mockery by his captors. Spiritually, he suffered the pain of our sins being laid upon him. It says in Isaiah 52, verse 14, that through his torture and suffering, his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, no one would scarcely recognize that he was a man. Now, after that round of suffering under Pontius Pilate, but before he was actually dead, he was then crucified, the creed says. Now, crucifixion was a method of execution that seems to have originated with the Persians and then was utilized by the Greeks and the Romans. 
and it was usually reserved for, reserved for criminals of the lowest classes who committed the most heinous crimes. And in Jesus's time, a crucifixion under the Romans was a pretty standardized process. Normally, the person to be executed would have to carry the crossbar section of the cross to the place where they'd be executed. And if you remember, Jesus was beaten so badly, uh, tortured so much that he couldn't stand up under the weight of the crossbar. So Simon was recruited to carry his crossbar to his place of execution. Once a, a prisoner was arrived at the place of execution, then they would be stripped of their clothing and they would be flogged again. After that, their arms would be attached to the crossbar, their hands, either with ropes or by nails. Jesus was attached to the crossbar by nails. We know that. And then the crossbar would be hoisted up on a stake that was already driven into the ground so that the body would hang on the cross high above the people so that they could see him and that he would be a public display and a deterrent to anyone else from committing this kind of crime. And so then once he was hoisted up on the cross, sometimes a block would be attached to the stake so that the buttocks of the person dying could be able to sit on the block so that they wouldn't die too quickly by asphyxiation or suffocation because they wanted the person to die a long, slow death in the public eye. So then after they were hung on the cross, then their feet were attached to the stake, either again with ropes or with nails. And then death would come slowly, usually after several days, through the cumulative effect of thirst, hunger, exhaustion, and exposure, and the traumatic effects of the whipping and the flogging. Again, it was supposed to be a long, slow, painful death, a very public spectacle to keep people from rising up against the mighty Roman Empire. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, and then he was crucified, and then he was dead. Jesus actually died more quickly than most people who were crucified because he'd been beaten more severely. He was actually crucified between two other criminals. And it says in the scriptures that um, the Jewish people who had conspired to have Jesus put to death, they didn't want these three bodies hanging out in public over the Passover, over the Sabbath. And so they went to Pilate and asked for another favor. It says in John 19, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was the high day, again, this is Passover, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So why would you break the legs of the people hanging on the cross? It would be so that they couldn't push themselves up to grasp for air. If you broke their legs, then they would sag, and they would asphyxiate, and they would suffocate, and they would die more quickly. And so that's what the Jews were asking for. It says that the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first, now the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, was crucified dead and buried. But why? Why would the eternal Son of God, the creator of life, 
endure that? Well, the scriptures say he was enduring the punishment that we deserved. On the cross, he took upon himself the punishment that should have been ours for our rebellion against a holy God. Again, look at what it says in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He poured out his soul to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. The suffering he endured, the crucifixion he experienced, and the death he died, he did in our place to atone for our sins. He gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that the demands of justice for the sins that we had be committed, the demands could be met, but that we wouldn't have to meet them with our own suffering and death. And this is known as substitutionary atonement. He atoned for our sins by dying in our place. And he did this out of the deepest love. Paul would write in his letter to the Romans, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God proves his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And after Christ died, the creed says he was buried. He was taken down from the tomb. Uh, two friends of his, Nicodemus and the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, they went to Pontius Pilate and they asked if they could take his body down. And they took his body and they wrapped it in linen grave clothing. And then it was placed in a freshly cut stone tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased. It says in Isaiah, he was placed in a rich man's tomb. And so then some adversaries of Jesus went to Pilate again, and they said, well, this man said he was going to rise from the dead. Can we seal the tomb and put guards in front of it? So Pilate gave them permission. A stone was rolled in front of the tomb, and guards were appointed in front of the tomb. Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord, was crucified, dead, and buried. But that's not the end of the story. If that were the end of the story, we wouldn't be here. And so the creed tells us why we're here, what happened next. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. No resurrection of Jesus, there's no Christianity. There's no salvation for us. Now there are several reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so critical, so foundational for the Christian faith. Let me just give you three reasons. First, the resurrection confirms the identity of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, paying for them in full, and God raised him from the dead, vindicating him as the innocent, infinite son of God. This means that the sacrifice he offered was accepted by God to atone for our sins. We can be completely forgiven. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, we wouldn't know anything about him, most likely. He would have just been another false messiah who deceived everyone and was crucified. We wouldn't even know about him 
If we did, it would just be a blip on the screen of just another religious phony. But no, he was vindicated by the resurrection, shown to be the son of God. It says in Romans chapter one, Paul's opening statement to that letter, he was declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. Number two, the resurrection declares God's victory over sin, death, and Satan. Jesus overcame sin by living a perfect life and then dying for our sins, paying the full penalty for them, so that sin has no power over those who choose Jesus. Jesus overcame death by dying in our place, in the place of all of sinful human race, and then he conquered death. He defeated death by rising a glorious imperishable from the grave, never to die again. And Jesus overcame Satan by turning Satan's best efforts to snuff him out into the very mechanism that would accomplish our salvation. This is why people sometimes speak of Christus victor, Christ our victor, Christ the victorious one. As the scriptures say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thanks be to God who has given us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number three, the resurrection foreshadows our future. We'll talk more about this next week and then in the coming weeks. But the simple thing is, is that by Jesus rising from the dead, he proved that God will raise the dead at the end of time. There were really only two views among the Jewish people of the time. One was that when you die, you cease to exist. End of story. The other is that when you die, uh, you go into a waiting state uh, to Abraham's bosom, but then at the end of time, God will raise the dead and you'll be reunited with your body. Jesus proved that resurrection is coming for all of us. We will all be raised. This is the Christian hope. The early Christians, they didn't place their hope. They didn't believe that the best God has for us is that we would die and then go to heaven and float around as disembodied spirits forever. Now, the Christian hope has always been that just as Christ rose, we will also rise at his return. And then we will dwell with him and with our loved ones who die believing in him in our own glorious, imperishable resurrection bodies in the new heaven and the new earth that he will create at his return. So, we could talk for days about what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means for each of us, but let me close with three very personal things that they mean for you. First, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means for you that you are loved. You are loved this much. You are loved so much that Jesus didn't ask your permission whether he could suffer, whether he could be crucified, whether he could die for you. He just did it. Because God who created you wants you to come home to him and he has made a way. No matter what the world tells you, no matter what maybe your family tells you, no matter what uh, your peers tell you, you are loved, so loved by your creator he suffered, he was crucified, he died for you. Never doubt how much God loves you. God proves his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Second thing it means for you is that you are free. Jesus freed us from sin. He saved us from sin. 
already at the moment you accept him, you are free from the penalty of sin. There is no more penalty that needs to be paid for your sin than the price, the penalty was already paid for it by Jesus, the innocent, infinite son of God. That means you don't have to fear the wrath of God. You don't have to fear the justice that we deserve for being sinners and being self-centered and rebelling against God. It was all paid for. You don't have to fear the penalty of sin. Also, you're free from the power of sin here and now. Because when you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, giving you the power to say no to sin just as he did, and giving you the power to say yes to the new life that God has for you. And in the coming days, you'll be saved from the pollution of sin in your life completely and the presence of sin forever in the world to come. But right now, you are free. You are off the hook for your sin. Jesus paid for your sin in full. And as it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus and his death mean that you have a future. You have a glorious future. Satan can't take you out. Death can't take you out. Jesus has defeated them. And his resurrection is a foretaste of the good things to come. Just as he was reunited with his disciples, we'll be reunited with our loved ones when we rise. And we will live with him forever. This is the Christian hope. The best truly is yet to come because of what Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, has done for us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all the grace that you've shown. I thank you for the suffering you endured, for the crucifixion you experienced, for the death that you died, and for your resurrection. I pray that each one of us would let this sink in, all that you did for us. And Lord, now we pray the prayer that you taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now, friends, let us gratefully and confidently declare what we believe. Say it with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified of our most recent content. If you have any comments or questions for us, feel free to jump over to WashingtonCrossroads.com. Thank you again and have a great week.